Hi, and welcome to Technotopia, the podcast about the future. I'm John Biggs. This week, we're talking to Laura Kreefman, crane dancer. This is Technotopia. Welcome back to Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. This week, Stefan is out. Uh, instead of uh, witty banter back and forth, we're going straight into the interview. This week's interview is really interesting because we're talking about cities, the future of community, and what it takes to make giant cranes on the Skyland dance with each other. This is Technotopia. You're about to hear Laura Kreefman, wired creative fellow and choreographer. Let's, uh, let's start the recording. Three, two, one. So we're here with Laura Kreefman. We spoke about her last episode. You are, Laura, a Wired Creative Fellow, and you're also a architectural choreographer. I think one of the confusions that we had last episode is that you actually deal with cranes, and not the bird kind of cranes, but the big kind of cranes. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that as we get started here on Technotopia? Yeah, so, um, so my background as a choreographer started off making work for stage and over the last kind of five or six years I've been specializing in augmented dance so the fusion between movement and technology to try and figure out how on earth we can evolve the physical language and the way we think about dance and how we can encounter dance and one of the big themes that came out of doing all this work was an increasing obsession of why on earth can't we use the existing infrastructure of our cities to create spectacles and events that allow us to see the natural movement capabilities of our cities. I may be alone in this thinking, but um, uh, I was given a fellowship with Wired magazine mm-hmm. to try and see this. And Is that I'm still now... a magazine? They still make that one? They do. They oh, do good. print and digital. Yeah, no, they <laughs> exist in both forms. <laughs> but uh, they gave me the fellowship to um, pull off this dream, which was to use industrial construction cranes to make synchronized dance routines so lit beautifully with music broadcast live over radio stations and we launched in the autumn here in bristol in the uk mm-hmm. and ten thousand people turned up to see three cranes do a synchronized dance routine <laughs> Ten thousand people ten thousand people ten thousand people who have a in their heart of hearts, a relationship with cranes and the way that they move on our skylines, who have a relationship with our cities and who'd never, ever, probably ever stopped or thought that actually what I'm going to do on my Saturday night when there's kind of like the Rugby World Cup going on is turn up and see cranes do a synchronized dance routine. And they did. They came. But did, did you tell them to come or did they just look up? Well, a bit of both. We got a lot of passes by. We got a lot of people on their way to their stag do's going, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, we'd, um, we told people locally and it went absolutely viral in a way that viral campaigns never actually do. Like normally when somebody some, says something's gone viral, there's been a lot of money put in to make it do that. Yeah, very I nice. actually watched an event go viral. Um, and so we're now in talks with cities all over the world about... Um, taking over their skylines, mm-hmm. creating these spectacles that give us permission to look up, that gives the cities back to their citizens for just a short amount of time, that kind of question who has ownership of our cities, um, all kinds of things like that. So this is a podcast about the future. So the goal here is to talk about that in the context of what's coming up. 
And if you're also familiar with Stefan and I, we're we're basically optimists. We don't think it's going to look like Blade Runner. It's we think it's going to look more like cranes dancing on the horizon, which yes. is pretty cool. So, what do you think it is about what your work is showing the average city dweller uh, about their city? What are they learning from uh, from something crazy like that? I think it's about being able to question and take repossession of these spaces that we live in. So there's quite a major shift, I feel, in the manner in which we start to understand our relationships of why we choose to live somewhere and what those very localized communities are about. And and there's going to be a major, major shift in the manner that we um, uh, manufacture stuff and how we store stuff. It's going to become so much more localized and that this the sense of constant evolution and change is normally something that we feel really divorced from. And so I think something events like this, crane dances, that reposition that and allow you to go to question the... Oh, I suppose... Sorry, I've stopped mid-thought. That's a terrible thing to do in the middle of a no, podcast. Fine, yeah. but, <laughs> this is a conversation. This isn't a podcast. Just imagine you're, you're talking to <laughs> me and a couple hundred other people in their cars. Brilliant. I hope you're seeing something really fantastic out of your car window as you drive along right now. And I hope that if you just take a second and glance in your rear view mirror, you'll see something extraordinary. Or if in front of you, you'll see something extraordinary as well. So I suppose what I'm trying to do in this work is my interest is in our relationship with our physical environments and in our world that we're in and that we we actually live in. And there is an amazing amount of breakthrough work coming through that actually is about that tangible relationship. And we are regaining an interest and a love of and a rediscovery of how powerful our physical environments are on us. And so I suppose what we're trying to do with these is, is create another seed of change, a memory, a memory of looking up and reclaiming the sky above our heads, a mm-hmm. memory of seeing these incredible mechanical beasts but they're controlled by men, but you know, they're controlled by individual drivers, mm-hmm. um, which in the case for Bristol was these amazing 70 year old gentlemen who were all retired crane <laughs> operators. But they were like the epitome of what the, um, they were so grounded. They had that knowledge in their body of being able to make metal do at their command. What you used to have in the blacksmith in a village, you know, that kind of, um, beautiful uh, understanding and grace and precision, but also absolute sense of command of self, of knowing that they can move 10 tons of machinery mm-hmm. with effortless grace. Um, I've gone off on a riff because you've got me talking about cranes. This, no, is like, like, <laughs> this is what I do. But I think, um, so what I'm trying to do with these things is actually a reposition our relationship of actually who has ownership of the cities and who and how a spectacle and how events can take place but in the long run also look at repositioning how we develop and how we design these spaces so a lot of the work we've done for years with the company um with universities really revealed that they're you know we're in a unusual position because as a company we understand how people move and we understand people's relationship with objects and all kinds of things 
And so there's something about actually understanding how that could change the future wayfinding and design of these spaces. And if you create these memories that actually challenge our use of our cities now, what does that do to a wider citizen's sense of citizenship and engagement? So, you know, uh, I'm waving my hands around. No, as no, a no, way that's of fine. Explain, I, think, but, I think one of the interesting things that I, th- I like, I like the idea of, of looking up again. I think the idea of engaging with the city, I, it's, I was reminded of this, uh, this a couple nights ago. We went, I went with my son to go watch a comedy show in, in downtown New York in Manhattan. And he looked up uh, at the skyscrapers, and he was actually amazed by the skyscrapers. He hadn't he hadn't really thought about them before, and I hadn't thought about them in years. So, it was a it was a really nice experience to see him interact with the space in that way. But I think what you're suggesting is that there's there's a more interpersonal relationship that cities can have with people that the that we can uh, in the future that you'll be able to interact with things in ways mm-hmm. that we can't imagine right now. And that are far more compelling and far more, um, let's say, valuable to yeah. the average citizen. It's a collaborative future. So an event like this couldn't take part place without a huge number. I think we had about 90 collaborators working to facilitate this, mm-hmm. which means also you have to find a mix of different languages and ways of working and use loads and loads of the future tech around us, which I've been using for years, to create ways of visualizing this, of making this tangible, of achieving it of literally achieving this um but it's those both those collaborative processes which are completely changing for my generation and below the manner in which we expect to work and how we want to work and you know this is not the sense of heroes leading from the front it's not a sense of power leading from the front this is about how do we work best together and how do we achieve best together and how do we leave our egos outside the room but bring our skills into the fore and how do we allow our most unusual skills to develop to allow something to agree and add and i think we're starting to see this in a wider society which is why i'm totally with you guys about being optimists about this future mm-hmm. because what i see is uh, amazing social-led and social-driven initiatives which are about building different types of of tribes which are kind of but they're auto didactic in nature you know this is these are about this is about lifelong learning and this is about self-led learning and this is about going you know you've got a whole generation going i think there is a different way of doing it and who reach out using the tools we've got around us now and find ways of learning and ways of sharing. And it's open source and it's open community-based. And what you end up with is expertise. And you barter with that expertise. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting to a place where we've, we could potentially end up with cities which are where all the food is locally sourced and locally grown because we're using all the clever stuff, using the red and blue lights, of, you know, of using polytunnels, of using all this kind of stuff. Or, or of hydroponics, or whatever, yeah. where you've got uh, uh, micro production, which we're seeing with loads of really high end designers who are using the 3D hubs and the such to um, go, right, you can buy our phenomenally well designed, exceptionally high end product, but we're not going to make it here and ship it. We will choose you a really good manufacturer who can make it locally to you 30 miles down the road from you, mm-hmm. or even in the future a mile away from you. Sure. So we get into this kind of really interesting place of kind of like of um, uh, micro and localized uh, manufacture, which totally starts to disrupt all the models about kind of like um, of the, 
where GDP lies and where money shifts to. And, and so you get to something which is so much more close to a barter and an exchange economy. It gets really exciting, I think. Okay. So that's, <laughs> so I think one of our, one of our go-to questions is, uh, what do we have to look forward to? Why should we be optimistic period? You already, you just, you described some of the potentials for that, but I mean, we could also imagine a different future where, where Nike zaps shoes to your home 3d printer and then all of a sudden they explode or whatever. Uh, to some people, an idea of a 3D printer is sort of is sort of dystopian because you're kind of moving away from the means of production. You have folks who are you have folks who are really good at making objects. Uh, I have a 3D printer and I have like statues and things. And then if you can mm. it, if you can instantly reproduce that over and over again, what's the what do you think is it in, in human nature that's going to allow us to uh, to be nice to each other versus use these tools to uh, to a negative in a negative way? It's the sharing of culture. So you have to go back to the fact that the base principles are your culture is your sense of history and sense of self. Your creativity is the manner in which you explore literally your sense of self against that world and that kind of exploration. Of it. And the tools we've got around us are the tools that allow you to do that. So if we are able to, oh, yeah, we've got downfalls ahead that we have to negotiate, which are the extremes of the kind of like, the plays on power that we're seeing going around and there's a whole other riff about that but mm -hmm. there is so yes we can make statues you and i can both make statues we can use existing models that are out there but we also understand that if somebody who has an incredible level of aptitude and grace and skill which is far beyond that who will share that with us and allow us to handle and hold a thing of their ex their expertise and excellence I think there's also massive shifts going on in the way that, um, well, the energy just distribution, you know, Jeremy Rifkin talks about this. Only, uh, he talks about the fact that, you know, you've got whole streets and communities deciding, actually, if we all put solar panels on our houses, mm -hmm. we can power all of our houses and we can also be paid by the, the grid because we're pulling panel, power back in. That's totally shifts the power of what coal and what all the kind of the, the those older styles of minerals and everything do. And Jeremy Rifkin writes beautifully about that. Mm -hmm. But you see it in, you know, in deepest, darkest Wales, there are whole cities, whole towns <laughs> where you can live for. Yeah, they're probably not cities. They're definitely towns. Um, but you can live for 200 pounds a month cash. Everything else is done on a barter economy. Hmm. Everything else is done on an exchange of and it's about that community and it's about that value and there is um it's like the in the height of victorian you had this urge for the philanthropic okay graces so you had these men with large amounts of money who would you know and were using the tools which actually possibly meant that other people were living at a much lower standard but their tools meant they'd earned a lot and therefore they had to pay back with these philanthropic gestures but actually what you're finding is that there is almost there is a shift there's a whole generation of people coming through who go we're never going to be able to retire we're never going to have this point where we stop and then we do good or you know anything like that so who are choosing to look at how how do you live the entire of your life now with those best values and those best processes at heart hmm. and i see that massively in the city that i'm in you're seeing a, a lot of people who are leaving very very highly paid jobs to take on jobs which are much closer aligned to their morals and values are also only choosing to work four days a week rather than five days a week 
and are doing so at you know like a, a quarter of their previous wage but in doing so are actually a thousand times more happy are much more connected into their community you know and are able to invest that day into a barter to something else in the community that then they receive something back from mm-hmm. and for them that's an understanding that actually we need to live our lives as we in the best manner possible now because we're not necessarily going to be have this wonderful time where we're suddenly you know, <laughs> paid by the state after paying in <laughs> to stop working. You know, these, this idea of pensions all paid by your employer because there's no job guarantee anymore, you know, and you've got an entirely fascinating group of people who feel like a portfolio career is exactly the way to move forward, that this reflexive learning, I've met so many CEOs who don't know what to do with themselves because they keep offering people jobs mm-hmm. and then going, well, we don't know what to do because we've offered this guy a job and they've said, that's great, I'll work for you two days a week. And these CEOs are like, no, but we offered you a job. And the people are going, <laughs> yes, I would love to be with your company. I would love to be in this working environment with you and I want to do so for two days a week. And I only want to do it two days a week because the other times I'm doing this, this and this and this. And those things, including DJing and writing and mm-hmm. whatever, are feeding into the skills that the reason why you want me in this organization and I want to keep both. And so there is, so you're going, if we're doing this, how do we carve our city spaces and the places we live to support that? You know, how do we shift this? How do we shift this use of space? How do we shift this um, back into this physical and tangible world rather than mm-hmm. world of squares and bricks and you know, these bizarre shapes that we put up around ourselves, you know, which are really, really exemplar of the hierarchies we've got. You know, we've done work with huge architecture companies who've just gone, we're in despair because when people come in to us and ask for us to design places, we're already dealing with a hierarchy. Okay. So <laughs> the, you know, the airport is being designed for the first class customers, not for the cleaner who has to work, walk five miles just to get to their cupboard. <laughs> oh, God. So there's, you know, there's like, you know, going, how do we, so then you go, well, actually, going back to the cranes, so if we can use all these amazing schools and techniques we've got about being able to collaborate collaborate with people and change the language we use and work in these spaces and be comfortable making this a win for everybody, how are we also then placing ideas about actually then the potential for the next time for the entire urban lighting design of a city to be beautiful and playful and to be dappled and not for CCTV, mm-hmm. to make it so that you can change the wayfinding in a city. So two different areas of a city that people want to get to, which are a mile apart, become a really beautiful and navigable route, you know. Mm-hmm. So then you start to go, well, actually, how do we, can, you know, and there's just, a, there's just a world of opportunity there about re-exploring all of this with the tools that are around us now, which means that things can be renewable and you know that they're, they're so much like that they just have a an ability to live and be dynamic so I, without major interventions so i think i think what you're i think what you're saying and this is this is something that we've been thinking about i mean you used to have little sections uh, of london for example you'd have little sections of london each one would be a neighborhood i remember there was a book mm. called the ghost map uh it was about the um i guess it was the black death or one of the major plagues and they discovered that the plague was sourced from one well in one little area. It was walled off. And, and if you lived in that area, you were definitely got the plague and you spread it out to everyone. But if you shut down the well in that area, then you you prevented the plague and they basically stopped it that way. Um, these, little, these little sections, these little areas, 
that's a that's a horrible that's a horrible example but on the flip side you also had a tiny little neighborhood that was that was recognizable and everybody knew each other and there was a there was a sense that that not to be nostalgic uh, but there was a sense of community there was a sense of uh, of olden days uh, connection that you don't have anymore you really you go into your apartment you go upstairs and I think this is particularly particularly um, bad in the big cities like New York and, and London but I think it's getting better and I think what you're saying is that a place where you live becomes sort of your small community and you barely even have to go out of it uh, to get the things that you want if you want to get good food it's right there oh. if you want to if you want to meet uh, interesting people they're right there uh, I think I would if go you want to get the plague it's right there as well. yeah yeah so I think <laughs> I'd possibly I think I'd possibly completely go against that okay because I would say that actually that's what we're, that's where you that's what you find in cities where there is a huge social economic divide and okay. everyone just goes everywhere by car and you've got these gated communities and yes you've got your restaurants and your cinema inside that gated community in theory you've got everything on your doorstep i think actually what we're seeking for is the opportunity for serendipity you know that's the, the what you said there is almost like the 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 smart city model where you never have to interact with anybody and okay. you can do everything in isolation i think i'm going for the entirely the opposite i think i'm going for creating uh i think what we're trying to do and what people are reaching out by working with really different people and moving into really different areas and allowing ourselves to evolve in that way is actually it's about the physical environments and it's about serendipity so the joke in london is that you'll move to six different areas before you find the area that you want to live in you know every yep. year you'll move to an entirely sure, sure, polar sure. different episode. i mean i certainly did and i every single person i know did the same as well but then you'll find something in that community, in that area, in the architecture, in the layout, in the parks, in the coffee shop that becomes really, really important to you. And you find a tribe there that may not be about, that will be intergenerational and it will be, mm -hmm. but it won't necessarily be about your family and people who've known you all your life. But it will be really, really strong connections. But they may be just as much with the barrister and the guy who owns the bookstore uh, as you know, as it might sure, have been sure. previously. So, I think uh, the hurdle I wish we could get over, absolutely desperate wish we could get over, because I think it's so destructive, is the it's the obsession with borders and boundaries. Okay. Because actually, I think what you're seeing, you see it within country borders, is that people become quite fleet of foot. You know, we. We move around different cities, we go to a different work, we go to things where spaces where we can learn in different ways. And this is what we spend quite a lot of our years doing. And then we find an environment where we feel we can keep doing that and then we want to bring other people into the world as part of that and then we often mm -hmm. settle down. You know. Um, but we're still so restricted in how we can do that internationally and across borders. And I think there's the most beautiful examples of what Estonia has been doing with their e-citizenship that says, you, you handle all your business here. And if you work for five months in Germany and five months in Indonesia and two months in Switzerland, no problem. We'll deal with all the tax returns to those specific countries. We'll talk our HMRC. We'll talk to their HMRC, so to speak, you know, mm -hmm. and everything will be sorted. And we have to find a manner in which that we can trust and respect that the, where we move to, that we wish to invest in and commit to that place. You know, some people are warm-bodied people. Some people love the snow. You know, some people, we, choose, we have a physical relationship to these spaces. And so if we could actually travel and work with freedom in those places, we would actually, 
yes, we would move around. But if we can invest back into that and we know we're able to pay our taxes and those systems are easy. And so we can go, I want to come and work with you here in Indonesia for four months. Mm -hmm. And I can arrive and I can pay and I can be here and I can invest for that time I'm here. So I'm paying back, you know, and then be able to go somewhere else. That would make a huge difference, I think, to um, the potentials of how we collaborate. Otherwise, we will be stuck in our rooms and we will be stuck with 3D printers in, you know, in isolation. Yeah, so my, so my vision was actually dystopian in that respect. I think, I think yours is even, is even further out, further afield. The, the return of like a, a global community where we can be basically move uh, from place to place as necessary or as, as, as whim requires. Yeah, because our... Our tribes are not localized anymore. I have some of my best friends live all over the world. And what I love the most is the fact that there are a multitude of devices around now which allow me to, on a whim, to send them a message, to send them a voice message, Mm -hmm. to sing happy birthday down the phone to somebody as a surprise to them, even if I know they're asleep at that point in time. But when I'm thinking of them, I'm able to share that and exchange that and... So there has the there is a we love that and we cherish that we are we're empathetic creatures we love learning from other people we we love safely being able to stretch our boundaries and explore things you know we're all we've all got fears we've all got places where we feel less more or less comfortable but you know a lot of the things that we're struggling with and a lot of the things that are identified in these dystopian photos of doom sure, 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 are, sure. are based on old power <laughs> systems that actually, for anyone who's 30 or younger, just do not exist anymore. You know, our governmental structures, our governments are put together to, uh, to cover our, that kind of base level of the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. So they were there to be able for us to stay safe, stay warm, stay housed, and have food you know we'll pull together to be able to share energy we'll pull together to share safe places to store the food we'll pull together to keep each other safe to make decisions as a community about what is morally acceptable and what our values are so on and so forth what our government structures are now doing because they're so pyramidic they are obsessed with power they're desperately holding on with their fingertips and they haven't realized that they've got no feet underneath them at all anymore but they're holding on to, you know, which is why we're getting this obsession with GDP and we're getting this obsession with minerals and we're getting this obsession with boundaries and borders and closing down. When the, whole, the entire other generation has just gone, actually, the more we collaborate, the better the things we make. The more we collaborate, the more interesting the outcomes. The more we collaborate, the better the ideas, the better the evolutions, the stronger you know, the less, the more we, so that's a completely different understanding of worth and value, you know, and we've got to somehow create an environment. Some of the smaller countries have got this. You've seen examples in Bogota, you've seen stuff Estonia's doing, you've seen stuff, you know, in much smaller countries where they understand that they need to shift back to a point of agility, where they go actually, as a governance structure, why don't we get out of the way and just help, you know, focus on these base areas and give ourselves permission to change our systems? But what we've got is systems holding on for dear life. And that dystopian viewpoint that everyone harks on about <laughs> is that old power structure going, no, 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 it'll go wrong, no. And actually, 
there are some things in the shift which are going to be hard and I I don't know how we're going to overcome them. It's going to take some incredible leaders and there'll be leaders beyond authority. There'll be people who officially have no power in this situation. I mean, I think one of the best examples I know of that is, there's two, I think. Um, but if you think about Paddy Ashdown, say, who does loads of work with Interpeace as a peace negotiator, he has no power in that situation. He has no money. He has no uh ability to write the laws he's just there to encourage people to get into dialogue and find a way to negotiate and write that you know um what he does have is a command of languages i mean the hayes report that came out a couple of years ago really clearly said that unless organizations you know that everyone's going to have to be bilingual and multilingual we're the only generations for whom we think that's an option mm-hmm. you know this idea that coding is a um is a high skill that is a high skill, but somewhere along the lines, it's also going to become a universal skill. You know, there is a whole shift of things that are happening, which will allow things to progress and evolve and become um, so much more collaborative because there'll be so fewer barriers. So what does your, this will be, this will be our last question. We'll we'll give you we'll give you some time to, uh, time to expound again. What, what, does your day look like in 20 years? What does the average person's day look like in 20 years? Oh, I don't know if my day is an average day. (laughs) Well, let's give it, we got about, this this is supposed to go 30 minutes, but we can probably go another five or six hours. So let's just, uh, let's let's see. (laughs) What does does a person's day look like in in five years? So it's not going to be- 20 years, 20 years, I'm sorry. 20 years. Um, It's not going to be delineated by an eight hour this and an eight hour that at all. Um, I think there will be, I think we will have a working, we will be living a life which is actually much more about an interrelationship between lifelong learning and lifelong exploration. I think we will still have an urge to turn to return to and be in physical spaces with people. So I think there will be, we all have points in our day, then we will actively go and be somewhere because of the community in that place. Mm -hmm. We'll also have points in our day where we'll be learning and exchanging information that will be much more remote than that. For me personally, I kind of, I think this is going to have a lot to do with, I think it's just as likely that I will be sailing and going I'm an avid sailor but sailing going from port to port and also working on stuff and actually being part of those communities and specifically going places where I can engage in dialogue with a community that I've been able to access remotely and actually be able to fulfill that as well but I think on a day-to-day level I mean I can see myself you know there'll be fundamentals but I can see myself just as much spending an hour out in my community garden picking, you know, fresh fruit and veg and things like that. And then making a a breakfast where you're also learning something and you're listening in on a lecture from an open, you know, a a MOOC or something similar to this Mm -hmm. to spending an hour working with collaborator, kind of like figuring out the coding and the way that we challenge a problem and things like that to spending two hours you know literally physically making cranes dance and on site and working through the practicalities and the safety and all the the legal aspects to spending oh god knows you know another couple of hours doing something really physical whilst doing you know so I think we're going to have this much more um we will give ourselves much more permission to 
work across all these different reflexive spaces where everything feeds into the whole of us. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we we have this. We are still being indoctrinated that uh, you go to work and you work these hours, and then you stop, and then you have fun time, and then you stop, and then you sleep. <laughs> and, and none, none of this works because that's not how our brains work. Our brains work by being dynamically fired. Our brains work by having multiple stimuli. Our brains work by having our subconscious work out stuff whilst we're cycling to work. And 90% of our brain is focused on getting us there and keeping us safe. You know, when we're swimming, when we're doing these activities, and I think we will find a shift and an understanding and an acceptance of these very, very different models of, you know, cross-fertilization, I think. At least I hope so. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that sounds like a place I want to be. Uh, I'm glad you didn't say flying cars or anything because we don't know anything about that. But I do I do see the uh, the sense that we're going to be pulling out into being able to chunk our time in a more efficient and more sensical manner. Um, beautiful. So... Laura Kreefman, architectural choreographer, Wired Creative Fellow, Gorilla Dance Project organizer. Where can people go and see some of your work? So there are two great websites to come and find out what we're up to. The first is masscranedance.org. Mm-hmm. And that means you can uh, see the work we've been doing of making <laughs> cranes dance. <laughs> uh, and look at how you could bring it to your city because we are... I just would love to take this all over the world. And um, so if you want it, get in contact, you can have it. Um, And also you can find out a lot more about our work, which is, you know, fusing movement and technology at a much more physical and human level through um, gorilladanceproject.com. And that's gorilla like gorilla warfare. Okay. All right. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Laura. You've been listening to Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. Next week, we're going to have Stefan back on the show. Uh, Until then, Thanks for listening.